The following episode comes directly from our friends at Trending Globally, a podcast of Brown University's Watson Institute. You can subscribe to Trending Globally on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or by following the link on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. From the Watson Institute at Brown University, this is Trending Globally. I'm Sarah Baldwin. In the middle of the Jordanian desert sit thousands of rocks carved with inscriptions in an ancient form of Arabic. Their meaning has long been a mystery. But one night in 2013, Ahmad al-Jalad, an expert in the early history of Arabic, managed to decipher a few key words in the inscriptions. By morning, he'd made a major breakthrough. He had basically assembled this entire zodiac, this entire way of uh, referring to different constellations that was a zodiac that we didn't know existed. It was an Arabian zodiac. That's Elias Muhana, a professor of comparative literature in the Watson Institute's Middle East Studies program. He wrote about Al-Jalad for The New Yorker in May 2018. Al-Jalad's work has been part of a recent explosion in our understanding of pre-Islamic language and culture in the Arabian Peninsula. I spoke with Muhana about Al-Jalad's groundbreaking research and how it's helped recast common narratives of early Arabic history. I started by asking him how they first met. Um, so Ahmed and I met actually in graduate school, but he was really a kind of a prodigy. He, he um, uh, had this incredible talent for languages, had, he was self-taught in many ways. And right, and not just any language, right? Exactly. He had studied, he had taught himself classical Arabic and Hebrew and, and a lot of ancient languages and, and had sort of discovered his passion for ancient history and, and, uh, and language uh, while he was in college. And I had been kind of interested in him and his, his research and his ideas just when we were graduate school buddies. And I kind of followed his career um, after he finished and went on uh, to be a professor of um, Semitic linguistics at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And so what is what is his work about? Talk about these alphabets and these ancient yeah. languages and why they're important, especially in the context of um, the history of Arabic and the history of Islam. Right. So his work is uh, really exciting because it deals with this enormous uh, trove of inscriptions that are written on rocks in the middle of the desert. In the In the Jordanian desert, there's a there's a part of the desert that is completely black, basically. It's a basalt desert, the result of like these volcanic eruptions hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years ago, actually. The Hara. The Hara, exactly. The Hara. Yeah. And uh, it covers, you know, there's many, there's, there's several of these uh, volcanic deserts in northern Saudi Arabia and, and eastern Jordan. And uh, at some point, you know, people, Bedouins, you know, goat herds, um, began writing inscriptions on these rocks. This is like 2,000 years ago. So it's before the revelation of Islam, before the, the region becomes uh, Islamized. And for, you know, for hundreds of years, nobody could read these things. They didn't know what they were. And to this day, actually, people who live in Jordan, many people who live in that area, assume that these inscriptions are written in Turkish or written in some other language because they are they're written using glyphs like an alphabet that that look like runes so people didn't really know what these texts were 
And uh, at some point in the 19th century, they were deciphered. Um, Orientalists, you know, uh, took a crack at it and basically began to decipher the texts and realized that they were some kind of a form of Arabic. Uh, but they weren't written in the Arabic script because the Arabic script hadn't been invented yet. I mean, that would come like hundreds of years later. And can you describe the, what is the technical term for that kind of writing? Well, so the, the, the name of the, um, of the alphabet is called Safaitic. Uh, and it's, you know, because it was first discovered in the vicinity of a place called Safa, Tlul Safa in, in, in southern Syria. And uh, I think the term that you're referring to is uh, bustrophedon. So that's just really that means a style of um, of writing where the where the the words kind of wrap back and forth. It's not like left to right or right to left. The like an ox turning. Yeah, like an ox turning. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was so interesting. Um, so the script is is uh, is deciphered, and but for a long time it. You know, the, the study of these inscriptions kind of languishes because very few people work on them and they don't, they, they, they've deciphered the script, but they don't really know, they still can't really make sense of the language and the culture that produced these uh, inscriptions. So Ahmed comes along and um, he's taught by the world's foremost scholar um, who works on these inscriptions, Michael McDonald. I mean, Michael basically took him under his wing and um, in a very much like an oral tradition, taught him how to work with these kinds of texts. And it's funny because Michael himself had been taught by a, a former, you know, a previous scholar who was kind of an independent scholar. And, and, and the, tra- the kind of chain of transmission had, had, uh, had passed that way all the way back into the, into the 19th century. Wow. It's so, almost like an apprenticeship. Exactly. It's... It was very much like that. Yeah. What's interesting about this kind of scholarship is that it's very slow. And it's very laborious, and you have to um, spend a lot of time with texts that you don't really understand, and you have to kind of keep them all in your head just in case there's a moment when something is going to kind of click. And I think, you know, Ahmed described that experience of working at home in Leiden, you know, and um, just going over these inscriptions. And something clicked for him one night when he was. reading some inscriptions that that had were that contained words that had previously been translated as proper nouns you know as place names and that's kind of a cheat you know when you when you don't know what something means often you say well maybe it was the name of a place you know there were a bunch of these inscriptions that had these words that had words in them that they they really had no explanation for what the words were and he noticed that they all talked about um they all had a mention of of traveling in search of um, traveling for in search of rain, mm-hmm. um, and it just kind of hit him that maybe they weren't place names uh, on the ground, but they were they referred to constellations because certain constellations would be seen in the sky at different times of the year, um, and so maybe they were somehow references to the seasons, which could be a reference to seasonal migration in search of rain across the desert, going to different places. So navigating by the stars in a way. Navigating by the stars and going, um, yeah, going places, uh, t- well, really time telling, calendrical, you know, telling. So that we, we travel to such and such a place um, when Aries was, you know, in this part of the sky or whatever. And he started to collect every every one of these uh, inscriptions that he had kind of flagged as containing words that he didn't really know. And lo and behold, like many of them were related to um, this this theme of migration. And so he worked all night long 
And by the end of the night, he had basically assembled this entire zodiac, this entire way of uh, referring to different constellations that was a zodiac that we didn't know existed. It was an Arabian zodiac. And so that kind of work, I think, is really um, exciting. And we don't do a whole lot of it. You know, we don't um, we don't associate that kind of um, you know scientific slash humanistic way of uh, approaching history um, so much anymore. And so I, I found it really exciting, and 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 wanted to know more about it. Mm-hmm. He's he's so young, and he sounds so old in his yeah. <laughs> in his story. Right. Yes. Yeah. He is. Uh, he's quite um, a fascinating individual. There's a one of the things that Ahmed often talks about is um, the difficulty of knowing what Arabia was like uh, around the the time that Muhammad lived. Right. So you know, around the in the early seventh century, and so what kinds of sources do we turn to to explain to, to really kind of um, tell that history and invariably we turn to chronicles that were written by historians uh, Muslim historians living usually a couple centuries after the death of Muhammad so historians are really uh, bound by like contemporary historians are uh, constrained by the evidence that we have we have a huge amount of lit- so-called literary evidence so we have a lot of chronicles and we have a wealth of information and, and that has traditionally been the source for how we try to reconstruct um, early Islamic history. But because the Arabian Peninsula, basically Saudi Arabia, um, for most of, let's say, the 19th and 20th century has, has been kind of off limits to other kinds of inquiry, other kinds of exploration, um, like archaeology, basically, there hasn't been a whole lot of documentary evidence Um the kinds of things that historians would ideally like to have in addition to literary sources. So in those places up in the north, uh, in Syria and in Iraq and in Jordan and in Lebanon and stuff, there's been a ton, and you know, Palestine, Israel, there's been a ton of archaeological um, excavation. In fact, like archaeology there in Egypt, is that's kind of where the, the, the field of archaeology really prospered, grew. Um, but in in you know, Mecca, Medina, certainly, like, there have not been a lot of excavations for understandable reasons. That has begun to change, but really in the past 10 years or so, uh, there's been really a, a boom of archaeological excavation in um, across the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, uh, Qatar, um, Yemen, Oman, a lot of places. Um, and what are they trying to prove? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, the archaeologists I spoke to, um, many of them felt that there was an interest on the part of uh, ministries of culture and um, you know museums in exploring their their countries like pre-Islamic heritage. You know, uh, as a way of um, I mean, when you look to the northern Arab countries again, Syria, Lebanon, um, they and Egypt, actually, also, they've always kind of, uh, they've celebrated their, their let's say, Muslim heritage, as well as 
a pre-Islamic heritage. So the, the Egyptians can point to the pyramids and say, well, we were civilized long before the arrival of Islam. And the Lebanese can point to Baalbak, you know, the Roman ruins and say like, you know, we were, we were Roman or we were Phoenician at one point. And the Syrians, the same thing, they can point to Palmyra. The Jordanians point to Petra, you know, all these civilizations that, that existed before the, the Islamic uh, invasions. And for the longest time, you know, the the countries of the of the Arabian Gulf, Persian Gulf, um, really kind of started their histories with Islam. You know, it was kind of like that was the beginning of civilization. And we've seen a real shift um, in recent years where there there there's been a real interest in in exploring what came before. And I think for for a long time there was an assumption that that nothing came before, or that there had been a Bedouin culture there. And so there was a culture of some kind, but it wasn't a um, so-called civilized culture. Uh, it wasn't a sedentary culture. It didn't produce monuments, so there was no way to recapture that. Um, and I think that there's been a realization that that's just not true, that there, there were, in fact, um, uh, fascinating, uh, very advanced civilizations across the peninsula. We'd always known that there had been those kinds of civilizations in places like Yemen, where they had left monumental inscriptions and... Um, uh, you know, large buildings, and and so there was real evidence of advanced um, civilizations there. But in Saudi Arabia, there was kind of an assumption that it was well, it was just desert until Islam came. Basically, if you ask a hundred people about this, that you might get a hundred different answers. But I think that it's safe to say that there is a kind of mystique associated for many Muslims um, with the the idea of something being born in the desert. You know, where it couldn't have been influenced by some other outside thing um, that 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 accrues to its miraculous nature that the Quran you know was revealed to somebody who uh, many believe was illiterate you know the prophet so he didn't write it himself it had to be a miracle that he that it came to him um, and what's really interesting is to see how um, I think this kind of evidence really raises questions about um, what we can learn about the culture, the, the first audience of the Quran, the first audience, the first Muslims, uh, the more we learn about that culture, the more we can really uh, begin to understand actually the ways in which it was, you know, um, the way in which these texts actually did emerge out of something. That's what makes this research really exciting, but also potentially sensitive, you know. Has he gotten pushback to, to your knowledge? He has not. I mean, I follow his, uh, he's very active now on social media. And if anything, you know, his work has been really kind of gobbled up by people in the region, you know. Um, and that's one of the things that I think he's found really exciting is to, that he is constantly receiving photographs from amateur archaeologists in in Saudi Arabia and in Jordan like I I there was this inscription you know near my house and I took a picture of it and what do you think of this and so and it ah, it's not just Ahmed uh Leila Naami uh, the linguist in uh, in Paris that I spoke to uh said it's just amazing I get emails all the time from people across the region saying like I took a photograph of this inscription and here it is here are the geo here's the, the coordinates 
And um, so we're really living at a moment where all this inscriptional evidence is kind of like coming to the fore now. It's so cool. It's like it was always out there. We just needed someone to read it. We needed someone to read it and we needed a a way to circulate it easily. So I think it's a story of technology. Well, that's that's what interests me in in your essay as well. It's so quintessentially you, right? It's this, it's ancient and literary and digital right so right. <laughs> so you know the the proliferation of camera phones social media people being able to share all this stuff and the speed of it is you know it took like a hundred years for the script to be deciphered and it circulated exclusively in like scholarly journals and you know things people would argue over what a word meant for like 30 years basically because <laughs> that was the pace at which it happened but now i mean ahmed posts a picture of an unpublished um, inscription that someone has sent him that he studied, he posts on Twitter, and and you would not believe the people that who come out of the woodwork and and like and and say it, mu- it must mean this or it must mean that. Like so, amateur philologists, amateur or philologists, that, I didn't, and who knew there uh, was such a thing. Yeah, it turns out there's a lot. There's a lot of really big epigraphy buffs and people who, I mean, not all the inscriptions are written in in te- in languages that only he can read uh-huh. or in, in scripts that only he can read some of them are you know in early arabic mm-hmm. and um so yeah it's really interesting well so tell me about going to the desert with him in in 2017 what was that trip like i mean it sounds like you're walking like it's a library on the ground and you're yeah. just walking and all the books are open yeah am i <laughs> is that overstating it? no it i mean it, it's kind of like that um i went i flew out to amman and I didn't really know what to expect. You know, uh, he and I are, are really good friends. And so um, I was looking forward to hanging out with him, but I had no sense of what it was going to be like. So we got in a car with him and Ali Al-Manasir, who is a professor, uh, a researcher um, who was then based at Oxford, Jordanian. And we all kind of jumped in a car and like drove out, basically drove east on the road that go- runs from Amman to Baghdad. So it's like this two lane road. And we just kept driving out into the desert. And this is at this point, like there was a lot of activity. We were, I mean, we were like 30 or 40 miles, maybe 20 or 30 miles at one point from the Syrian border. And this is when ISIS was really active in Syria still. It hadn't been defeated. Um, and they were all clustered <laughs> just north of the border. And there were airstrikes. I mean, there were fighter jets flying over us the entire uh, weekend to, you know, sorties. Um, into Syria from from Jordan, a lot of military activity happening at the time, and there were smugglers and you know the town we were in was really kind of like a one horse town that was uh, very much a smuggler's town. There was like cars racing through with like tinted windows, and um, and we stayed on a we stayed on like a military base, a Jordanian military base where that had um, a, like a sort of a ramshackle research institute that had seen better days in the in the 90s. Um, it was all very kind of Spartan, but it was great. I mean, every, we'd get up early in the morning and go out into the desert. We had a Bedouin guide, and we would just kind of like pull off the highway and drive for about an hour into the desert. Did you have GPS coordinates that you were trying to find? So, yeah, we did. Um, and Ali, the the other researcher on the team, um, kind of knew this 
area like the back of his hand and he, we would walk around and to me it was just undifferentiated basalt you know <laughs> rocks everywhere but he really knew where we were and he could he would like look at different hills and he'd know where people had been before where previous excavations had gone and um and he knew what you know which hills had been published and which journals which findings and so on so he had a very clear sense of where he wanted to go and uh, yeah, so we got out there and then we would just kind of walk. And we'd usually walk towards hills because that's where a lot of the inscriptions were clustered. Why? So you have to imagine these huge tribes would arrive, you know, would come north and they would bring all their animals with them. And this area is completely, it's a big desert now. But you have to imagine like 2,000 years ago, it was a kind of a savanna. So although there were, you know, all these basalt rocks, it was actually, uh, it was really pasture land. Um, and over time it becomes, there's a, de- a process of desert of desertification that really transforms this, these landscapes. Um, so they would bring all their animals and they would let them basically pasture there. And um, the, the shepherds would want to be up on higher ground so they could keep an eye on predators and also any, you know, anybody who was coming to raid or anything like that. And that's where they would spend their time. And so that's where we'd find all these like graffiti basically on these rocks. So it was like graffiti. What were they using? They're using flint. Uh, so flint is very hard and very sharp. And they would use that to etch um, these messages on the rocks. And, you know, the word graffiti... Ahmed doesn't like to use it so much. Uh, for the longest time, that's how they were described. That's how they were, you know, written about in the sources. He doesn't like to use that term because graffiti we think of as an informal practice. And so you just see random letters on walls, and that's graffiti. And for for him, he, he Ahmed really thinks of it as a kind of a formalized, um, a kind of form of monumentality. That there's a real grammar to these things, and they they fall in patterns, and it's a memorializing activity. Yeah, I th- I got that sense from your article yeah. that it <clears throat> that it has a memorializing function, that it has a musing or even an artistic, yeah. poetic function. But also, I thought it was so interesting this idea of monumentality mm-hmm. being in our minds like a Greco-Roman concept of largeness mm-hmm. and impressiveness, and yet something small and etched can also have a monumental yeah. function or yeah for sure that's you know very much something that he stresses that um we have to we come out into the field with you know with our own ideas about what monumentality looks like what memorials are supposed to look like and we have to kind of re we have to adjust our our preconceptions so they have cameras and they you know every time they see an inscription they take a picture of it and it goes into the database and it go and it's uh, it has its geo its its coordinates and everything, um, so GIS the GIS technology has evolved, you know, tremendously just in the past fifteen years, and so now a lot of these inscriptions that are in the database have all this additional information, so it enables you to do lots of things. It enables you to track the movements of um, of the tribes because a lot of the inscriptions have the names of the people who who wrote them. Um, in fact, sometimes that's all they have, like so-and-so was here, you know, um, and, and when they say so-and-so was here, it's not like, you know, um, Kilroy, Kilroy. it's like Kilroy, son of, and then right, all right, these, right, right. all the, you know, son, grand, <coughs> grandson of, and it goes for generations and generations. If you can imagine having a, 
a, a database and there's 50,000 of these things. So if you can track these names and maybe track the families, you can basically begin to have a picture of where, where they moved and why. In your so, lifetime? Oh yeah, for sure. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, putting it all in one place, but it is right now in one digital database, but I think there's more that can be done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's different kinds of search functionality. Does does his work affect your scholarship? I mean, you're sort of you're yeah. comparative literature, but you're also a historian. Mm-hmm. You study knowledge. Yeah, you know, I I've always been interested in language and um, and especially the the history of the Arabic language, and that was one of the things that we that drew me to Ahmed's work when we were in graduate school. And um, so it does intersect strongly with my own work. Not so much my most recent. Uh, publications, but my next project, which is about, um, which deals with the history of the Arabic language and the vernacular. Um, and, you know, the, the differences between spoken language and written language and um, and how those two things kind of interacted with each other throughout the history of the Middle East. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it does intersect strongly with one of my big research interests. Do you think you might collaborate ever, the two of you? Well, we're trying to, <laughs> we may be we're working together a little bit on this big corpus, um, which is called Oceana, the online corpus of inscriptions uh, from ancient North Arabia. Um, and it's uh, it's based at Oxford. And um, we're, we're trying to uh, work, work together on bringing Brown's... Um, so Brown is a leader in the field of digital epigraphy. We're kind of like one of the most... Um, one of the best places to be for that kind of thing. And we have a couple major uh, projects on ancient inscriptions, um, digital digital corpora of ancient inscriptions um, based here at Brown. And so we have a lot of expertise on how to deal with this kind of, how to build these corpora and, and, and bring them up to date. So we're hoping to maybe collaborate a little bit on, um, on just kind of like turning the functionality um, of that corpus kind of raising it a little bit because uh, the technology has changed so much in, in recent years. Elias, thank you so much for coming and talking to thank us. Thank you. Today. It was a pleasure. I hope you'll come back. This episode of Trending Globally was produced by Babette Thomas, John Maza, Dan Richards, and Alex Laferriere. Our theme music is by Henry Bloomfield. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps others find the show. For information about this and other shows, go to brown.watson.edu. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week for another episode of Trending Globally.